Well, keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to be looking into the familiar story of David and Goliath. However, as you'll see, I don't want to call this the story of David and Goliath. I want to call this the giant versus the Lord. Because that's what the text really brings out. This is not a matter of a small man versus a great man. This is not a matter of a swift man against a heavy man. It's not a story of skill against strength or anything like that. No, this is a story of the Lord versus those who would attack his people. And that's what David knows, and that's what everyone else doesn't see. You see, Saul and all the people of Israel, when they saw the Philistine giant, they saw themselves against the giant. And they all rightly concluded, I cannot defeat that mountain of a man. However, when David looked out across the field, he did not see himself against the giant. He saw the giant against the Lord. And so David knew that with the Lord, he would easily dispatch this mountain. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we have a strong contrast between the sermon this week and the sermon from last week. Last week we were in 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 13, looking into the life of Saul and how Saul was tested by the Lord to find out whether or not Saul truly feared the Lord or whether he feared man. And we found out that Saul did not fear the Lord, but instead he feared man, failing those two tests. This week we're going to see that God tests David and finds that David is a man who fears the Lord. You see, to fear the Lord means that even when nobody else sees the Lord in the situation, everyone else is just looking with the eyes of the flesh, that one who fears the Lord perceives the Lord, even when the Lord is invisible, even when no one else understands the Lord's presence, the person of faith sees. And that's who David is. And this is a glimpse into the heart and the life of David and shows us why the Lord selected David to be king over his people and not any of his brothers or any of the other men in Israel, that David was the one who had his heart fixed upon the Lord, who feared the Lord and who perceived the Lord even when no one else did. So we're going to start here in 1 Samuel 17 with our outline, Goliath's challenge in verses 1 through 11. Follow along in your Bible as I read it out loud for us. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's the challenge that Goliath puts out to the people of Israel. Let's take a look at the stats on Goliath here in these verses. We're told that he was six cubits and a span there in verse 4. Now a cubit is about 18 inches. And so according to that measurement, we've got a, a man here who is nine feet nine inches tall. Now, there's nobody in the world today that is nine foot nine inches tall. You've seen a a few giants in our world. And this is reminiscent of Og of Bashan back in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. This is reminiscent of some of the other giants that we have mentioned in the Old Testament. In these ancient days, there were still giants in the land. And Philistines seem to have one of these giants in Goliath. Now, We think that's probably an accurate measurement of his height because that would go along with his armor. We're told that his breastplate, his coat of mail, weighed 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. So the size of some of the the young women in our church, a full-grown woman might weigh about 125 pounds. And that's what his coat of mail weighs. And he walks around with that 125 pounds of armor just on his upper body, not to mention the armor that he has on his legs. And then when it says that his spearhead, his javelin, was like a weaver's beam and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, that's 15 pounds. Then you go to the weight, you work out with your 15-pound weight. Imagine attaching that 15-pound weight onto a big beam and hurling it as a javelin. Now that is going to do some damage, even if you have a shield to block it. And the strength of this man, the size of this man, truly intimidating. That when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine in verse 11, the scripture says, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We established last week that Saul was a man who feared the people that he listened to the voice of the people, he feared mankind, and if you fear man, well then Goliath is your worst nightmare. Because this is the most fearsome man that appears in the text of Scripture. They were dismayed and greatly afraid, and this goes on for about six weeks. We're told that it's for 40 days that the Philistine champion comes out and issues his challenge, and nobody on the side of Israel is willing to stand up to his challenge until we find the entrance of David in verse 12. So we go on, and from verses 1 through 11, we're going to see now in verses 12 through 39, the entrance of David onto the scene. I love this story. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three eldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 
And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again, as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So there we have David's entrance. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of the details here. I want you to notice verse 25. In verse 25, it says that this man has come out to defy Israel. Now, when the people are saying he's come out to defy Israel, notice they're just thinking of themselves as a nation. They're just thinking of themselves as a people. They don't talk about Israel and God. Now they should be thinking about God because the name Israel is the name that, that God gave to his people and there's a lot of history and meaning packed into that term, but that's lost on a lot of the people. And they're thinking, well, we're the Israelites, they're the Philistines, we're just a couple of armies, a couple of nations battling it out with each other, and they don't see it as a battle between the giant and the Lord. They see it 
in the same terms that it has been posed to them by the giant that this is actually a battle between the Philistine champion and whatever champion the people of Israel have in their army. Now, the Philistines, they didn't see anything special in Israel. They didn't think of them as being God's people. And so when Goliath comes out with the challenge, he says, I defy the armies of Israel. But notice that David sees the situation different. David has a totally different perspective on what's going on here than what everyone else sees, and so he has a different response. Instead of a response of fear, he has a response of courage because of how he perceives what is actually going on. David understands that this Philistine has not defied the armies of Israel, but he has defied the living God. That's the difference. That's the key. That's what David knows that other people don't know and what causes him to do what he does in contradistinction to everyone else's reaction. David saw with the eyes of faith. While they were defying the armies of Israel, and that's how Israel saw it, you notice back in verse 8, when Goliath had issued his challenge, he said, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Well, is it true? Were they servants of Saul? Yes, they were servants of Saul. David identifies himself as your servant when he's talking to the king because that's the relationship of king and people. So it's not untrue that he's the Philistine and they're the servants of Saul. He's just left something out. That they're not just the servants of Saul, but they are the servants of the living God. And that Saul is the servant of the living God. And when you leave God out of your calculations, when you leave God out of your thinking, then you are insane. When you leave God out of your calculations, when you leave God out of how you perceive the situation, you are insane. Because God is the most important factor in every situation. God is the most important person in every circumstance. And so to not think about him, to not factor him in, is the essence of unbelief. It's the essence of folly. It's the essence of sin. That's where Goliath is. That's where the people are. And David is the only one in this situation who sees it clearly. He's the only one who's factoring in the Lord in his calculations. He's not calculating, what are my chances with my speed and my skill and my experience of defeating this man with his strength and his experience, he's calculating what are my chances when I trust in God's promise and when I trust in God and seek his glory, what are my chances of God helping me when I put my trust in him to be able to defeat the one who is mocking and taunting God? Well, 100%. 100% chance. He's completely confident because he's factoring God into his calculation. That's the key. When God is as real to you as the man who is standing in front of you, then you are walking by faith and not by sight. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. Hebrews 11, 27 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 starts with a pretty good working definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. David is assured of his victory. He is convicted that he is able to have God's help even though God is not seen because David is a man of faith. 
And this is not irrational faith. What's irrational is unbelief. What's irrational is thinking that God doesn't exist. What is irrational is thinking that God doesn't keep his promises and that you can't trust in God's word. That's irrational. David is functioning rationally. Everyone else is not. You come to chapter 11. What did I say? Verse 27. Notice as we go through the hall of faith and he mentions all of the great deeds of faith that are recorded in the Old Testament that he includes this one by Moses. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Now, you normally should be afraid of the anger of a king because the king has an army. And armies are pretty powerful. And you against an army is not a very good calculation. But Moses was not afraid of the anger of the king. Why? As it says, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw the one who was invisible. So when God is as real to you as the person who is standing in front of you, then you're walking by faith. That's the key. So we come back to 1 Samuel 17. The Philistine giant says, I defy the armies of Israel. Are you not servants of Saul? And David says, yeah, you're the Philistine, and yeah, we're servants of Saul, but we're also servants of the Lord. And you left him out. And that's your fatal flaw. That's your fatal mistake, Goliath. And you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for not factoring God into your calculation in this battle. And Goliath is like a, a wild beast. That's what mankind is without reasoning and trusting in God. It reduces mankind. This unbelief, leaving God out of our thoughts, it reduces mankind to an almost animal level of existence. And that's how Goliath is portrayed. It's kind of just a dangerous animal in this chapter. Now Saul also is like the people. When David comes and says, let's not be afraid of this guy, I'll go out and kill him for you. Saul says, you can't go fight this Philistine. Look at you, look at him. It's not going to work. So Saul is making the same faulty calculation that everyone else is making. Look at what this guy has. Look at what that guy has. Don't think about the Lord. It's not going to work. I can't let you go out and fight this guy. You'll lose. And the terms are, if you lose, then we'll all become his servants. I can't throw away our battle and our freedom on this risky bet of this young guy who's not even old enough to be in the army. So Saul is like everyone else. He also is not reasoning from faith. Now I want you to come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. From 1 Samuel, let's go back again to Deuteronomy. When I say that David had faith, I want you to understand the difference between faith and presumption. Presumption is when you assume that God is going to do something for you even though God never said he was going to do it for you. And there's a lot of that kind of presumption in the world and it's not faith. People who think, well, just I believe that God is going to do this, and so God has to do it, that's not faith. But if God says he's going to do something, and you believe it, that's faith. And that's why I want you to come to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and see, where did God tell Israel that they don't need to fear in battle, but that God would fight their battles for them and give them the victory if they would put their trust in him? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 20 is a great example. Look at the first four verses. When you go out to war against your enemies, well, maybe they should have been reading this when they were going out to fight the Philistines. This might be applicable to their current situation. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, 
Like was in the previous chapters when they had the 30,000 horsemen and the people of Israel didn't even have swords and they had to go to the Philistines for blacksmithing services. Now, okay, you're going out and you see the horses and the chariots and an army that is larger than your own. What's God's command? You shall not be afraid of them. How are the people of Israel feeling when Goliath comes out? They're dismayed and greatly afraid. That's a disobedient heart to God's command. God had commanded them not to be afraid, but they are afraid. Why? God always gives reasons for his commands. His commands are not unreasonable. He says, For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You saw my power. You saw how Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. You saw how I delivered you from the chariots of Pharaoh. So when you go out to battle, don't be afraid. Remember me. It's not that complicated. It's not that hard. You just have to believe that God is real and that God is going to reward those who put their trust in him. The Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 2. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Now where's the priest that's saying that here in the camp of Israel? A little shepherd boy has to come in and tell the king, let's not be afraid of this guy. Let's trust in the Lord. As God said, that he would be with us to fight our battles and he commanded us not to be afraid. How about we try that? And Saul, piggybacking on David's faith, he says, okay. Now you've got to appreciate the fact that at least Saul says, okay. If I was in Saul's position, that might be hard for me to trust the battle to this scrawny little guy. I might say, no, you're not going out to fight him. That's suicide. I'm not going to risk the battle and have you go out and lose the champion challenge. Now, this is not an unusual situation. This is something that happened. It was was part of the ancient culture that instead of having everybody kill each other, they would just choose a champion. You can read about this in Homer's Iliad, something that they did in a number of occasions to try to settle a war without much bloodshed, is to set forth a champion. Goliath is the champion. His size, his strength, his experience, his armor, his weaponry, he's the best that they've got. And I wouldn't want to go up against him. Can you imagine trying to fight someone who's nine feet, nine inches tall? Now, Saul lets him go because Saul piggybacks on other people's faith. As long as Samuel was with him, Saul did okay. But when Saul was by himself, he didn't do so well. And when David is here and David says, I'm going to put my trust in the Lord, Saul says, Okay, that's a good idea. We should put our trust in the Lord. And that's the way a lot of people are. As long as someone else is around them who has faith, they can piggyback. They can ride on the coattails of that faith. But what about when you're alone? What about when that person isn't there? Are you going to stand by yourself when no one else sees the Lord? That's the heart of David. That's the heart of faith. You need to be that person. Now, 
I also want to focus on verse 28. There's a key here with Eliab. In the midst of all this with the Philistine and the giant, we get this little portrait into the relationship of David and his eldest brother. And it's not a very good one. Eliab, his eldest brother, he seems to have some bitterness in his heart against his younger brother David. Perhaps this event is taking place after David has already been chosen and Eliab was there. He saw when the prophet Samuel came to his house and and said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. No, the Lord hasn't chosen you, Eliab, or any of your other brothers. He's chosen your little brother, the one who's out with the sheep. And Eliab might have some bitterness in his heart that God didn't choose me, but he chose David. Now, if it's not in chronological order, then this might just be normal sibling rivalry that we're dealing with here. It's hard to tell exactly sometimes in Scripture if events that are recorded first happen first, because sometimes they're put forward for thematic purposes, and that might be what's going on with this chapter. But either way, Eliab has something in his heart against his brother, and this is important for us to learn, because this happens in our families and our relationships as well. That when you start to get bitter against someone... Everything they say and everything they do, you interpret in the worst possible way. It's like, oh, I know why you said that. I know why you're doing that. And it's always because of the worst possible thing you can imagine. Don't be that way. That's not Christ-like. That's not godly. Husbands, don't get that way with your wives. Wives, don't get that way with your husbands. Children, don't get that way with your brothers and sisters. Love believes the best. Love puts a positive spin on what people say and what people do. It looks at it in the best possible light. It gives the benefit of the doubt. And isn't that how you want to be treated? Don't you want people to hear what you say and look for the good and assume that your motive is right and fair? Or do you want everybody to assume that everything you say and everything you do, it comes from extreme selfishness? Treat others the way that you want to be treated. Eliab does not do that here. He says, oh, David, what are you doing here? And it's like, well, my dad sent me here. That's, why, that's what I'm doing here. He doesn't, he doesn't say that, but Eliab, he's assuming that he hasn't been sent by his father, and he's assuming that he hasn't taken care of the sheep. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You know, you've got to stick with your job, stick with your responsibility. You're, you're not here for battle. You're not important. You should just be taking care of those few scrawny sheep we have out in the wilderness. That's your place, David. And he says, I know your presumption and the evil in your heart. Oh, do you? How many times have we made this mistake? We assume we know what's going on in the other person's heart. How many times have we been wrong? Stop doing that. We don't want to be like Eliab. David, he handles it reasonably well. He just says, what have I done now? I was just asking a question. And he turned away. And that's what you have to do sometimes. Somebody's bitter, somebody wants to start a fight, don't start the fight. Just say, I'm going to go talk to somebody else. (laughs) I see this isn't going anywhere good. David turned away and he spoke to others. That's a, a good response when somebody wants to pick a fight. So, a lot of great insight here that God includes in this chapter that's very rich in instruction for us. And that brings us then to the confrontation in verses 40 through 54. Let's read those verses. Pick it up back in 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. Actually, verse 38 is where we left off. We'll we'll start there. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, 
And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. All right, stop there. So the confrontation goes as David predicted. Exactly. He was 100% confident, and that confidence was rewarded because his confidence was not in himself, but his confidence was in the Lord. You see, this is not David versus Goliath. David is not the champion of the Israelites. Who's the champion of the Israelites? The Lord. The Lord is the champion. Still the same today. Who's our champion? Who's our hero? Who's our leader? Who's our general? Who's our commander? Who's our king? Who's our Lord? Same one. Now, as we look into the confrontation, you see Goliath's question in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And yes, he is kind of acting like a mad dog. I think God puts these words in his mouth for a reason. No armor to slow him down. No fear. David runs to meet him in battle. That's fearlessness there in verse 48. No armor to slow him down. No fear to slow him down. And this comes, reminds me of a great quote from Hudson Taylor the founder of the China Inland Mission, he said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is, it matters where the pressure lies. 
doesn't matter how great the pressure is. It matters where the pressure lies. There's a lot of pressure here on David. The fate of his nation is in his hand, in his sling, in his little stone. It doesn't matter how great the pressure is. It matters where the pressure lies. And David put the pressure right where it needs to be put, on the Lord's shoulders. I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to do what you told me to do. You told me not to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to go out there and fight the battle, and you're going to do what you said you were going to do. And God is able to handle that pressure. So whatever it is that God asks you to do, and you feel the weight of that pressure, you better take that pressure off of yourself and put it back with someone who can handle it. You know, people talk about being stressed out. And there's a lot of stress that gets loaded on people. I bet Hudson Taylor had a lot of stress in his life. But you don't have to be stressed out, no matter how much pressure is coming down on you in life, if you take that pressure off of yourself and you put it on the Lord. What does Peter command us to do as Christians? Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. The Philistines flee in terror. They don't honor Goliath's terms. They don't become servants to the Israelites willingly. They just run and live to fight another day. At least a lot of them do. But remember what we often say. Self-confidence is always overconfidence. Goliath is the picture of self-confidence. And he was overconfident. Self-confidence is always overconfidence. But know this, it's not possible to be too confident in the Lord. It's not possible to have too much faith in God. Oh sure, it's possible to be presumptuous and for people to pretend that they're trusting in God for things that he never promised. But once you have a promise from God and you understand that promise, there's no way to put too much faith in that promise. So let's take a look at some New Testament follow-up and encouragement will help us to act more like David. Come with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is perhaps the most powerful and encouraging chapter in all of Scripture, and it ends on a high note. It's not just the climax of the chapter, it's the climax of the book up until this point. And you pick it up in verse 31, and you see the confidence of the Apostle Paul, who has the same spirit as David. He fears the Lord, and he trusts in the Lord, and this then is what Paul is able to write as an example for us and as a command to us as Christians. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should put some courage in your heart. That should make you able to stand in a dark and evil day. That should give you power to be able to fear no man, but to stand fully assured in the will of God with courage and confidence. That if I'm crucified and following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's no defeat. That's a victory. That's a conquest. When the throat of William Tyndale was slit and they burned his dead body on the pyre, he was not defeated. He had overcome because he loved not his life even to death. And his dying prayer that God would open the king of England's eyes was answered. And there was an English Bible in every church in England. He conquered. He won. We win through suffering. We win through laying down our life. We win by following the Lord Jesus Christ with his fearlessness, with his confidence, because the resurrection changes everything. And William Tyndale is not dead. He's alive. His spirit is with God, awaiting his resurrection awaiting the glory that is going to be revealed when Christ himself returns. Do you believe it? It's God's word. You can't put too much confidence in it. Come with me also to the book of Isaiah. I said New Testament, but we did one in the New Testament. Now you know I love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51 Hear God speaking to you. Hear God speaking to us. The Holy Spirit says, Listen to me. Listen to me. Stop listening to your fears and your doubts. Stop listening to the people in the world who think the sky is falling. Listen to me. You who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man. Nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Look at verses 12 and 13. Same chapter. I, I am he who comforts you, says our God. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Or of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor who sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? The Philistines, the oppressors, the wrath of Goliath. Who are you that you are afraid of him O Israelites, and you have forgotten me. The only one who remembered was David. That's sad. But I'm thankful that there was one. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking for the one whose heart is completely his, so that he may strongly support that heart and that soul. The Lord looks 
among us today? What does he see? Does he see the faith of David? Let's pray for that. Father, we confess, I on behalf of all the congregation here, that we are too often like the world around us and that though we say we believe in you, when we're actually calculating what to do in the situations in our life, we act so much like the Israelites. We act so much like Saul. Father, forgive us for being so irrational, so foolish, so blind as to not see you, to not remember you, to not trust you and believe in you. We don't want to be this way, Father. And so we come to you knowing that you're gracious, knowing that you're good, and we ask you for forgiveness, and we ask you to open up our eyes the way you opened up the eyes of the servant of the prophet so that he could see the mighty angels surrounding the army that he was afraid of. Help us to recognize you, to see you seated on your throne as the Lord of hosts, to see your son Jesus Christ exalted to your right hand, Father, the one who trusted in you and who has been given the highest place of honor because he was willing to suffer as he put his trust in you. Father, make us like David. Make us like Paul. Make us like William Tyndale. Make us like the Lord Jesus Christ, the one from whom all these other men received their power and their salvation. He is our champion. We exalt and lift up his name in this congregation today. Amen.